Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. Having seen the crucifixion of Christ in all its horror and all its majesty. For most people, his death on the cross is the climactic moment in all the Bible. The moment Jesus yielded up his spirit and breathed his last. But for all the attention we give to the happenings atop Calvary's hill, none of the gospel writers conclude their narrative with that scene. Because as critical as it is to understand and appreciate, Jesus' death was never going to be the end of the story. That's what the religious zealots of the day failed to understand. It's what Satan couldn't see. They thought executing the Christ would put a stop to all of the Son of God, Savior of the world rhetoric. But as they were about to find out, hanging Jesus on the cross didn't stop anything. No, his death gave the Son of God, Savior of the world movement a brand new start. That's why Matthew is so careful to describe what happened to Jesus' body post-mortem. Because its impact on our life goes beyond even that of the cross itself. Truly, when thinking about the person and work of Jesus, it all centers around and hinges upon what took place in the moments after. After he suffered the indecision of Pilate. After he was crucified on a Roman cross. After he yielded his spirit to God Almighty. All of creation is watching and waiting to see what comes after the death of Jesus. And we're about to find out. Not just what took place in the days that followed, but why they are so critically important. That's the approach that we will take this morning by considering each event from those two different aspects. First, the authenticity and reliability of the accounts themselves, and then the significance of those accounts to life, faith, and our eternal destiny. First, let's consider Jesus' burial as a matter of historical fact. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 55. Matthew chapter 27, verse 55. After Jesus died on the cross by way of asphyxiation, many women were there looking on from a distance. 
who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. The moment being described to us here is without question, the darkest in all of human history. The light of the world had just been extinguished. I mean, this thing is over. It's done. The guards had finished their duties. The crowds were breaking up. At this point, everybody was headed home. Well, not everyone. Matthew assures us that there were some who stayed with Jesus all the way through. In addition to the faithful women in attendance, the gospel writer introduces us to someone entirely new. A man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. Now, Joseph was not only a man of great wealth, he was a man of great influence as a prominent member of the Sanhedrin Council. Yet despite his affiliation with the ruling body of the Jews, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. Now, it's true he kept quiet about his allegiance with Christ, while we are told to proclaim it boldly. But nonetheless, when push came to shove, in Jesus' darkest hour, when all the other disciples were hiding away in fear, who was it that showed up? Now, he wasn't loud like Peter. He wasn't in your face like the sons of thunder. But his name is the one recorded here because he's the one who showed up. And not only did he show up and stand on the sidelines as an observer of these things, he used his influence to access the governor and petition for the release of Jesus' body. Now, typically, the bodies of criminals who were executed under Roman authority 
were disposed of in the city's garbage dump as part of the disgrace of being executed by way of crucifixion. But on certain occasions, a family member of status might be given the body to perform a more proper burial. And that's what takes place here. Pilate ordered it be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And we read these words and oftentimes we're pretty quick to gloss them over because what does this burial account actually tell us? Why do Matthew and the other writers share this with such care and concern? Well, one of the reasons we need to stop and consider the details of Jesus' burial is because it roots the entire event in reality as a thing that actually did take place. They say, well, I don't have any hang-ups about that. Aren't Jesus' death and burial just accepted facts? No. No, these are the most highly contested matters of the Christian faith. Contested by practicing Jews. Contested by professing atheists. But interestingly enough, not contested at all by honest historians. Because regardless of one's personal view of Christianity, there is way too much evidence corroborating the burial of Jesus the Nazarene. Now, what are those evidences exactly? Well, several of them are made known to us right here in our text. For one thing, the location of his tomb was well known to the people of his day and thus would be very difficult to fabricate in this kind of story. Don't think about it. The account that we just read outlining the place of Christ's burial was written and circulated just 20 years or so after it had transpired. If the place did not exist or Jesus had never been laid there, wouldn't somebody who was on the scene have called a stop to this charade before it gained any momentum? Of course this happened, truly and historically, because the location of the burial was accepted as fact by the very people who saw it take place. And who were those people? Now, if we had a list of witnesses to call, well, Matthew gives that to us in our text. According to him, there were personal eyewitnesses from every persuasion of faith and every level of society. You had family members with at least one of the Marys having a relation to Jesus. You had Christ followers like Mary Magdalene and Joseph of Arimathea in verses 56 and 57. You had Jewish authorities, like the chief priests and the Pharisees, mentioned in verse 62. 
There were governmental leaders on board with this. Like Pilate mentioned in verses 58, 62, and 65. And you have Roman guards whose job it was to see over these burials mentioned in verse 65 and 66. I'm sure there were others who saw this take place, but just from this list in Matthew, you have the religious and the secular, the rich and the poor, the wise and the simple. All present, all participating, and all agreeing with these facts that Jesus died and was buried. But for those who have a particular axe to grind with the claims of Christianity itself, there really is no debate to be had about the historicity of these events. In fact, even the majority of skeptical, liberal, or atheistic historians like John A. Robinson consider the burial of Jesus in a well-known tomb, quote, one of the earliest and best attested historical facts about the person of Jesus, end quote. Huh? Surely we can agree that Jesus' burial is a matter of historical fact. But let us now also consider Jesus' burial as a matter of theological significance. What difference does it make that Jesus was buried inside that tomb? Some people find almost no importance in it whatsoever. But for others... Well, like the Apostle Paul, this is most critical indeed. In fact, he names it among those issues of first importance in the gospel that he proclaimed. That Jesus died and was buried according to the scriptures. And we can start right there. One of the reasons Jesus' burial is significant theologically is because it furthers Christ's fulfillment of Scripture. The prophecy was laid out most famously in Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message, he writes, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. 
like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. As was mentioned earlier, the bodies of criminals who were executed under Roman authority were typically disposed of in the city's garbage dump. That was going to be Jesus' final resting place. Thrown out on the refuse pile with all of the other wicked men who had gone before him. But instead, a wealthy and connected Joseph of Arimathea petitioned Pilate and offered his own tomb so Christ could be with a rich man in his death. If that doesn't happen, either the Bible is wrong or Jesus isn't the suffering servant. If that didn't happen and he was not buried just like this, either the Bible is wrong or Jesus isn't the servant. The implications of which are enough to completely discredit the Christian faith Entirely. You see why skeptics want to attack this issue in particular. They know if they can make this one fall, our entire belief system crumbles down with it. Thankfully, by God's sovereign orchestration, what took place in the moments after Jesus' death perfectly aligned with what Isaiah promised back in 700 B.C. It also confirms what the Lord said about the burial himself. Back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus answered the insistence of the scribes and Pharisees for a sign by saying, only an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's how Jesus intended to signify to all of those scoffers out there that he is the Christ. It's called the sign of Jonah which focuses not so much on his crucifixion on a cross, but on his burial in a tomb, a tomb where he laid for those three days. If Jesus were never buried, all of that is wanting. And so you see the theological significance of this in its fulfillment of Scripture. But not only that, it also assures us that Jesus had completed his work 
of humble obedience. Setting the stage for what's next. There is a most basic reality that I suppose we need to acknowledge on this. It is a simple notion. But it has been disputed by more than enough. It says before someone is buried, they must first be dead. It's another reason why skeptics attack this issue. But we know it to be true. If Jesus' body was given over to Joseph, if the body was wrapped in linen cloth, if it was laid in a garden tomb, with all of the witnesses signing off on the procedure, it tells us Jesus had really, truly, and actually died on the cross as the culmination of a life spent in humble obedience to God the Father. As we're told in Philippians chapter 2, he was found in appearance as a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is exalted to that place today because he was obedient unto death and what comes after death? Burial. What comes after burial? The world's about to find out. See, this is not some throwaway part of the story, friends. It's not a quick read so we can get to what's next. It's setting the stage so we can appreciate and understand what comes next. And, oh, how glorious what's next is going to be. Yeah? To this point, we've looked at Jesus' burial as a matter of historical fact and as a matter of theological significance. We'll now consider Jesus' resurrection in that same vein. First, the resurrection as a matter of historical Fact. Take a look now at the beginning of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him, became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead 
And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. After they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ear, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as is to this day. These women came to pay their final respects to a loved one who had just been taken. Stand by the graveside, reflect, and pray, and mourn. And despite Jesus' own prophetic predictions, they showed up without a thought in their minds that he might be alive. And yet, after the incredible announcement of the angel, that's what they came to realize. Filling them with fear, yes, and with great joy. You know, friends, we can experience that same thing ourselves. If these events actually happened, if the resurrection of Christ is real, well, as was the case with his burial, there are any number of evidences that we could cite to corroborate and substantiate the claim asserted by Christians for the past two millennia that Jesus did actually and historically rise from the dead. We have two of the most convincing right here in the text itself, beginning with the reality of the empty tomb. That's what precipitates the whole exchange between the women and the angel of the Lord. They're looking in the tomb for the body of Jesus. Now, oh, the fact that the stone was rolled away sometime earlier, uh, that's fantastic indeed. But now that it's open and they can see in, where's the dead body that we laid there Friday night? Well, he is not here, the angel says, for he has risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying before the resurrection took place. It's the invitation that they are given to enter it, to search it, to do a most thorough examination if they would like. And still they would find it empty. Well, sure, that's what we read here, but this was written by a Christ follower. Isn't it possible he is just perpetuating a myth? No. 
And here's why we can be so certain. Because it's not just Christ followers who acknowledge its emptiness. The Roman guards couldn't find anything in the tomb either. Nor could the priests who received the report or the elders who were consulted later. Now, if the tomb still held the body of Jesus, what's everybody so frantic for? (laughs) With all their lies and their conspiracies and the hush money payments back and forth. And why would they fabricate this story still heard today about disciples coming in the middle of the night to steal the body? Why would they need that story if the body were still there? Now, in addition to showing us just how far men will go in order to suppress the truth of Christ Jesus, this leaves absolutely no doubt that the tomb was empty. Even the staunchest opponents of Jesus today are forced to concede as much. Atheist D.H. Van Dahlem admitted, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Yes, historical facts are difficult to dispute historically. Now, of course, the empty tomb itself does not prove Christ's resurrection. It's a compelling start, but it's not 100% definitive on its own because men have conjured other theories. And yet the other evidence in our text is definitive. As we see the first of many post-resurrection appearances of the real living and breathing Jesus. It begins with the two Marys in verse number 8, who, after speaking with the angel, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report what the angel had told them to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, Then Jesus, a man who died just a short time earlier, said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me too. It's a fairly brief encounter we have here, and yet we see in it a man who was walking, a man who was talking, A man who was physically being touched. At the risk of sounding trite, dead people don't do those things. Spiritual apparitions don't do all those things. No, those activities are performed only by those who are really and truly alive. Now, if this were a completely isolated incident, we might 
chalk it up to some grand hallucination. But this is not his only appearance post-resurrection. As Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 15, helping to do the accounting for us, we read this. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then, in addition to meeting with these women, what are we told in verse 5? He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, referring, I imagine, to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Here he is, walking, talking, even eating on one of these occasions because he had bodily risen from the dead. Yeah, but you're only using Scripture to back up your argument. No. No, there are at least nine independent sources documenting the conviction held by the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus personally and bodily. Such that even a skeptic like Dr. Gert Ludman is forced to agree, saying it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. From the mouth, friends, of an unbelieving atheistic skeptic. We can take it as historically certain. Huh? Jesus' burial is a matter of historical fact and a matter of theological significance. So too is his resurrection. It's a matter of historical fact, as we have just demonstrated, and Jesus' resurrection is a matter of great theological significance as well. Having settled the question, did this really happen, we can move on to one that is much more profound. Why is the resurrection so important? What about my life, my faith, my eternity hinges upon it being true? To answer that question, well, there are any number of things that we could consider. It was necessary to fulfill the scriptures. and We could spend time pouring through them for all of the evidence there. It gives us victory over death and the devil, which certainly affects our future. There's any number of things that we could spend our time thinking about, but in the few moments that we have left together, I suggest we consider the theological significance of Jesus' resurrection through the lens of one who actually saw him in the flesh after death. Namely, the Apostle Paul. If we continue in that 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see his understanding of the resurrection 
event. So if you have not done so already, you can turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin in verse 12. Paul says this to a group who had their doubts about the resurrection. Now, if Christ is preached, he says, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he did raise Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Without taking to a full exposition of this text, let me suggest just three points of significance that hinge on the resurrection of Jesus. To those who scoffed at its reality, Paul lays out point number one. He says, because Christ was raised from the dead, you can know with certainty that death will not be the end for you. Christ is said to be the first fruits of those who are asleep. Asleep being a euphemism for death in this case. The first fruits with all mankind to follow him. And don't we know that to be true? As Jesus said in John chapter 5, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Either way, friends, death on earth is not the end of your existence. Every one of us will continue on forever in one of two places. The Christ follower to eternal life. All others to eternal damnation. That is made right and real because of Jesus' resurrection. Oh, but that's not all. Because Christ was raised from the dead, you can know with certainty that our faith is effective and worthwhile. 
Paul states that principle in the negative sense. Saying in verse 14 that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Then again in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Friends, the reason that we trust, the reason that we follow, the reason that we lay down our lives, it's all tied to this belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has the power to defeat Satan. If neither of those things ring true, man, I'll be the first to tell you, we should all go home. Because it ain't worth it. If he's dead, our faith is dead right along with him. Oh, but thankfully, praise God, glory, glory, and hallelujah. Christ is not dead. He's alive. And our faith also. Because Christ was raised from the dead. Death will not be the end for you. Because Christ was raised from the dead, our faith is effective and worthwhile. Because Christ was raised from the dead, believers are no longer lost in their sin. Surely a complete exposition of 1 Corinthians 15 would bring more results to bear. But let us focus the rest of our attention on this one. Mentioned initially in verse 17. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is a critical component to the doctrine of justification. Most particularly in Romans chapter 4, Paul teaches that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It would seem to me then that without the resurrection of Jesus, believers are still lost in their sin and under God's judgment. Because if that were the case, then he isn't the son of God. He cannot stand as man's representative and he doesn't have what it takes to overcome. Oh, but he did raise from the dead because he is, he can, and he does. That's what Paul goes on to talk about in verse 20. Declaring that despite the doubts of scoffers and skeptics, inside and out of the church alike, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by another man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is the most glorious of all realities. 
that just through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, condemning us all to death. Through another man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin entered, offering life. The scripture makes that very clear. That apart from Jesus, you are dead in your trespass and sin. That there is no pulse to you, spiritually speaking. And like all others under Adam, you are unable to respond appropriately, unable to worship rightly, unable to do one single thing that would ever please the Lord. You are a sinner by nature and by choice, dead and without hope in this world. But today of all days tells us that Jesus Christ is in the business of taking that which is dead and raising it back to life. And that is the real significance of this historical event. One that some of you might still be missing. Don't stay in your sin under Adam, friends. Don't continue on that path to eternal death. Christ was resurrected. And you can be too. For as Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die again. Yeah? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are words we have read any number of times before. We can recall the story and the people and the things. Our Lord, I believe you would call us beyond that. Yes, that we would acknowledge these things are real, that these things are true, that these are rooted in history. Oh, but beyond that, these things will change our lives. They'll change our faith. They'll change the way we live and move and have our being. They'll change our forever if we let them. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die. Thank you for sending your son that he would be raised back from the dead. That all who believe in him might know this thing called resurrection personally and as a matter of fact. Lord, continue to be exalted in our midst as we give this time, as we give our lives more holy unto you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue. 